0: welcome to the OmniWin project podcast where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy my name is duncan autry and i am a conflict transformation catalyst i'm the creator of the OmniWin project and i am your host the goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations well then you're in the right place i believe that the world is ready for change and i know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing in this podcast i'm going to be sharing them with you i'm in this for the long haul and i hope that you'll join me so come on over to the omniwinproject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. The guest on today's show is Ryan Nakata. This is part two of my conversation with Ryan, and you can probably find part one wherever you found this episode, or you're welcome to find the link in the show notes. But you're welcome to start right here, but I just thought you should know about that. So Ryan is the co-founder of Meta-Ideological Politics, which seeks to reframe ideology as an analytical tool instead of a fundamentalist dogma. His work focuses on political depolarization, countering violent extremism, diversity, equity, inclusion trainings, and the creation of conflict-resilient cultures. And Ryan is also a wonderful writer. Ryan has an excellent analysis on ideology and a unique approach, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And he also has some great ideas about how campaigns can be used to fight polarization. There is so much possibility and there's so much that needs to change, and it's hard to be optimistic sometimes. And we talk about all that in this part of my conversation with Ryan. We ended part one of our conversation talking about straw man arguments, the ones where people are debating with the weakest arguments of their enemy or steel man arguments, the one where we're arguing with the strongest elements of another perspective. And this brought us to Ryan's unique concept of the titanium man approach, where one speaks to the best of the other's perspective and might even know about what they believe than they do. It turns out that actively building higher ground together is a powerful way of connecting across the divide. So let's dive in. And learn more about Ryan's awesome titanium man approach in practice. With no further ado, this episode is recorded in March of the year 2022. Please enjoy part two of my conversation with Ryan
1: Nagata. One other thing I wanted to say too was and I'd be interested in your opinion on this, Duncan. My you know, being being a mediator and having a mediation background, right? For the longest time, my approach to these kind of conversations was to come in as if I know nothing about the person's ideology or beliefs and to take a kind of lower power role and be really humble and, and ask a bunch of open-ended questions, kind of having them educate me in a one-way, like a one-way street, right? So, oh, what does that mean to you? What does that look like to you? How did you come to believe that? What do you think about this? Right. And and they would basically give answers and I would just paraphrase and ask open-ended questions. It, would, it was very neutral and very mediator-ish. That's that's a great start. I think that's a great way to approach conversations. And I still largely adopt that style or attitude. What I started finding out though, was that the titanium man is a little different. It's actually probably the opposite of that. It's this attitude of like, Hey, I might actually be more of an expert than you on your own thing. And that actually has benefits that the kind of humble neutral media approach doesn't have. And that's the fact that people tend to respect you more when you, you demonstrate that y- your knowledge of a subject and how much you've thought about their stuff. That can't come out by just asking open-ended questions and being humble and uh, being in a kind of lower power position. So I think both are necessary depending on the circumstance. And I, d- I definitely oscillate between those two styles in the same conversation. But um, as a mediator, I've, I've always had a bias towards the former approach and the titanium man expertise ladder approach is kind of my latest development that I've found to be extremely helpful especially when you're talking to people who ideologically believe that it's not their responsibility to educate you or that they just don't want to tell you more. So it's like, okay, this guy's clueless, uh, F him, right? But now that I've read all your stuff, I've thought about it, I've reframed it in my own way. Then it's like, oh, this guy gets me and he's put into effort to understand me. Cool. I respect this guy. Does that yeah, make sense?
0: It does. And and I think I, I understand the, like the, the question that's in there too. Um, so as a mediator, one of the things that I find that's really the whole process of mediation is basically like getting people from out of their positions where they're usually stuck and that's sort of having some conflict about getting down to find out what are their actual needs and values and underlying interests. that are motivating whatever's happening and having them have a conversation based on that level. And, and so as a mediator, we kind of bring that forward by giving them a chance to talk about what their experience is and reflecting it back in such a way that the other person can start to hear what they're saying, right? One of the challenges though, and it's like this little hidden challenge in mediation, is that a lot of people don't. Actually, know what's actually going on for them when they believe certain things. Like they don't necessarily, they're not super dialed in to what their underlying needs are, so that they could ha- be talking about a strategy. I need the dishes to be da da da, and they might even think that it has to do with cleanliness, but really, there's a conversation about respect that they want to have the other person cleaning up the dishes. They don't know how to articulate. They probably never really thought about it. And if you ask them, why is it important to you? Like Because it's just supposed to be clean. That's just the way you do it might be the answer. Right, and they right. might, you know, and it's like, well, you know, there's, a, there's something else there. And so you can ask questions to get people down there. Um, but being able to recognize, so I've started coming up with something that I call you statements. And I haven't really taken this out on the road, <laughs> but told many people about it. But so an I statement is me talking about My experience, my perspective, um, you know, my feelings, my needs, and then making a request that's not a demand, right? Um, A you statement that I'm, I'm in this framework would be me taking a stab at. So it seems like this is what you're observing. It seems like this is what you feel about it. It seems like this is what you need right now. And it sounds like what you're requesting is this, sort of like setting the person up with (laughs) what they're trying to communicate. And so I feel like that's where that bridge can start to happen, right? So first of all, asking questions, hey, why do you believe what you believe? Tell me why this is important to you. How do you understand power relationships? Some of those great questions you offered earlier. And then after listening a bit, saying like, okay, if I understand it right, this is really what's going on for you. And then like being able to start bringing in that like, All that research that you've done is the fact that you really have a good lock on it and helping them articulate what they're trying to say in a way that they didn't even know how to articulate it Um, and i think that that's helpful in conflict resolution and in this trans ideological conversation (laughs) that you're talking about
1: oh absolutely i think that's what a good mediator or even a good therapist helps people to do right is someone has uh, is confused about their inner reality. They're, they're confused about what their real underlying needs, values, and interests are. And they can't, they're can't. they not directly articulating them for whatever reason, right? They haven't done the introspection or meditation or whatever. And so they're just speaking from a more surface place and through open-ended questions and, and gentle probing, you're able to extract the real stuff that they write, the real core values or whatever the issue is really about to them. One thing I've noticed that's, that's become a problem, and again, this is where I think meta-ideological politics and this style of thinking can be helpful, is that sometimes people are so locked into the ideological frame that all of their core values and interests, the real direct human part of their, their values and interests will not come to the surface unmediated by the ideological frame. In other words, everything becomes scaffolded through the ideology And the language that's used to understand their inner reality is going to be ideologically laden. My kind of go-to example would be if I went to the Bush administration and asked why they invaded Iraq in 2003 and I talked to Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld, I don't think they're they're going to admit what their real interests are. Now, obviously, this is different because these are political leaders who might have a different agenda and they don't want the public to know why we really invaded Iraq. But everything will be, all of their answers or rationale would be scaffolded through the ideology of neoconservatism. You're going to hear a bunch of neocon talking points. I've seen this same phenomenon happen with many mediations, especially in regards to social justice issues and conflicts around like DEI and identity. Uh, people's needs and, and and so forth will all will come out through the language of kind of a social justice anti-racist paradigm. And if the other person doesn't understand that paradigm or doesn't like that paradigm, it becomes impossible to have a direct human conversation. Do do, do you know what I'm saying? Like instead of just talking about your feelings or your experiences or your values, it all becomes laden through the language and conceptual framings of the social justice paradigm. uh, And then that causes a lot of breakdown. So part of what I think about doing is how do we help kind of translate people's interests, see the signal of their deeper interest as it's strained through the cloth of their ideology? Right. And then from there, being able to find openings in their own framework so that those deeper aspects can come out more directly uh, and in a way that the other party that they're in conflict with can understand while helping both parties to know that they are indeed coming from a framework. Right, So the positive develop. this is kind of like a transformative mediation thing, right? But part of my definition of transformative mediation is by the end of the mediation, both parties will have more meta-ideological awareness and the frames of references that they're coming from that they were formally locked into without awareness of.
0: Wow. Yeah, totally. I and That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, cause what I hear is just like as a, as a tool that one can be like, and I think this is where like this kind of cross-field community conversation gets really helpful is that like for mediators out there that are you know using the tools of mediation for garden variety kind of conflicts um there's a real power that can happen in um recognizing the role that ideology is playing and that when people are in their um in their ideological talking point Mode that's interfering with their ability to really talk about their own lived experience or their, you know, really what's important to them, and to hear the other person because they're not speaking in that same language. Um, highlighting the what's going on with ideology, both for yourself as a facilitator and a mediator, but also with them, can be helpful. So. I know that you've been actually been doing some really interesting sort of DEI work, and and I think this is a good example of of this kind of meta-ideological mediation that you've been kind of been doing. So can you give us a sense of what this practically kind of looks like in a scenario where people are stuck in their ideological talking points? Love to my yeah.
1: favorite subject. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, I lead I I lead uh, DEI workshops for mediators. So I, I lead like a mediation forum DEI and also just to organizations and city governments and so forth, like training staff and that kind of thing. So I I want to tell a story. So I led a training for a small uh city in Oregon. Um, and everyone in the training except for one person was basically like a conservative several Trump supporters, all of them are forced to attend this mandatory DEI training. And the first guy that walked in, he looked at me, I looked at him, and I know in both of our minds, we said, oh, shit, this is going to be a rough six hours, right? Like I felt really bad that he was forced to attend this when he probably ideologically hates it. And I thought I was going to have a rough time trying to convey like what systemic racism or or any of these things are to someone who's probably very opposed to it and has probably had a lot of very bad experiences with very bad DEI trainings where he felt attacked and shamed and so forth right so this was a this was a great experiment for me um in trying to how do how do we convey things in a way where people uh, who are resistant to them or allergic to these ideas can best grok. So I've I've distilled a few principles from this experience. So the first one is simply to explain things meta-ideologically. So I always say, welcome everyone. Welcome to the training. My name is Ryan Nakate, blah, blah, blah. And then I say, for this training, we're going to be learning about DEI and racial justice and so forth. This is a frame. This is a way of thinking. It is a school of thought. It is not by any means the last say on reality. It is a perspective that I think is a helpful uh, perspective to have in our toolkit, right? It's a helpful lens that we can put on to see reality in a different way for a time being and and gain insights and and gain a greater awareness of ourselves and the society that we live in. Uh, But it's just a lens. So my encouragement to you is to try it on and play with it, see what happens, see what you like, see what you don't like, and then we'll talk about it at the end. That takes off 50, 60% of the anxiety and tension. Not by saying this is the way or this is reality, uh, but simply by acknowledging this is a lens. The second principle is non-exclusion. Non-exclusion means this lens uh, is not, I'm not trying to supplant your lens or your core values or your beliefs. This is a supplemental perspective to buttress whatever you already believe. It is to add on to what you already believe, to enrich the complexity of, um, of who you are, right? It's to enrich your understanding of yourself, and to enrich the understanding of your community. It is not about replacing what you believe or deconstructing what you believe and replacing it with what I'm about to teach you. That takes off the rest of the 30% of the anxiety, right? Then the third part is, the, you know, like, oh, we're talking about, we're exploring our personal um, personal identity, we're exploring our social identity. People feel like all of these labels, right? There's all these labels, like, we're ta- why are we talking about our identity? Why are we talking about race? All these labels. The reason why people don't like labels or or ideology in general, but in this case labels, is because they can kind of do they can kind of reduce the complexity of our being, right? My understanding of Duncan Autry is nothing more than he's a white privileged male. Uh, Duncan's going to feel like I'm not seeing Duncan for who he is as a unique and complex individual, right? I've reduced you to uh, crude identity categories, I can't see beyond them. So my criteria I say whenever we explore labels is, do the labels enhance the complexity of who you are or do they reduce them? Use them additively where they can enhance the complexity, but you can't be reduced to the labels. So this is the complexity part, right? Right. Any label or any abstraction should be used to enrich the complexity of who we are and our understanding of things and not reduce them. And how do we ensure that they're enriching them by using them non-exclusively? So one example, so the first exercise I give people is we're going to explore every aspect of your personal identity. What is Duncan's favorite food? What is Duncan's... um, uh, uh, like life motto, right? What are some hobbies that no one else knows about? And so they fill out an entire chart exploring your personal identity and who you are and how you see yourself on your own terms. Once we have that, and then we share that as an icebreaker, let's explore the social side of Duncan. Let's explore race. Let's explore our identity. Let's explore um, the systemic context that you were raised in. Let's explore your cultural background, et cetera. Now that we have these two charts, personal identity and social identity, let's put them together for an even more complex, beautiful tapestry, a picture, a por- you know, portrait of who you are. Let's see how the social factors, the systemic factors have uh, constructed our personal reality, right? Where do those two factors blend together? And now let's share them with each other, right? And we're celebrating the richness and the complexity of that. This go, everyone who hates the training ends up loving it at the end of it when you teach it like this. Right, uh, and and I really want to like scale this approach because I've seen so many resistant people light up by the end of it, and everyone's happy, and everyone feels like they learned something um, that permanently changed the way they look at life. And within
0: this specific moment with this one guy, like how did that one go? Was he was he in? You guys were in? Did you have a connection by the end of that six hours?
1: So I actually had to fight back tears. So at the end of the training, I always, we do a go around and say, what's one thing you took away from this? And when it was at the beginning of the training, when I asked for the initial go around, right, I asked him um, like, or I asked everyone, what uh, are you looking forward to? And what are you nervous about? And all he said was like, I'm here and that's it. By the end of the training, I asked the same question and the next day, and he said he lit up, right? He just like lit up and he was like, Oh my God, I didn't, I didn't believe, I didn't see before that every situation there's some kind of subtle power dynamic based on an innumerable amount of variables, right? It could be race, could be age, could be generation, could be income, could be your position within the organization, and that there's always a dynamic going on. And thinking more critically about how those impact people, I might not have thought of. I was like, holy shit. Like th- this is a, this is a, uh, you know, complete transformation and and he, just his excitement um, was so beautiful to see that. So oh. yeah, I, I really like that.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I see, cause what I, I'm appreciating just this, this layer of like, can we use this social category you know, that's salient in this framework or can we use this framework to Add another lens to create more complexity, and if it's reducing complexity, then we're not doing it quite right. Yeah. And and I um yeah, just personally, that's that's helpful for me to understand how I've come to understand my role as a white male, class privileged and American, and all these different social identities that I have, um, privileged social identities. But then I'm also you know an individual who has like. I love doing crochet, and I like um, podcasting, and I'm, you know, I'm fascinated with politics, and I really believe that we can create an omni-win, omnipartial world, and um, I like fractals, and you know whatever these different things that make me me, and there's a way that it's really helpful for me to be able to layer on, okay, that's all the things that are me, but when I'm interacting with other people, I got to remember that they're seeing me as someone with, with a ton of social power, you know, in the, I, in the dynamic. Because if I just try to be like, I'm always trying to be good and that's all I am, and then and th- I'm missing something. And so mm. I'm just, again, appreciating how, like, it's like another layer that we can add on. And and I know, yes. um, cool. like, just r- 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 reading your um, essay about um, diaphanous anti racism, but basically, how to c- create, like, a transparent, like seeing race, racial transparency, sort of like I see that your skin's there, but that's not the thing. I'm not my, I'm not stopping at skin color. I'm not stopping at your social identity. I'm seeing you all the way through, but I'm recognizing that this extra layer, this extra lens, is giving me some more information about what's going on here.
1: Right, exactly. And the idea of race transparency is that it's a transcendent middle way between color blindness and woke color consciousness. Right, you're saying it's kind of like looking through a pane of glass. Like I see that there's a pane of glass. I see that there's a window, but I'm also seeing through and beyond the window. So it's how do you acknowledge something without re-reifying it or essentializing it and rendering it opaque, right? We render it transparent and see the systemic structures and forces that that crystallized or played a role in... shaping our identity and worldview, right? Our positionality, as it's called in the social justice literature, uh, but not getting fixated on it, right? And seeing beyond it, seeing it as an aspect of our being, that's probably important to reflect on and understand, but that's by no means the end of uh, who you are.
0: Thank you. I want to sort of see if there's a kind of bring us to the to the, to the last little bits of this conversation with some other questions here, um, though I know that all these themes are going to keep on looping in. So, Question that I want to be asking all the guests in this season and, and in this podcast for now is if we're going to upgrade and improve our, again, our democracy, our political system, our culture around politics, what do you think it can look like? Like, how good can we get this? Right. Like, where do you see the places for improvement? But very specifically, when you think out the neck, you know, like, We have a midterm election this year, and then we have another national elections going on um, 2024, 2028. How are you going to know if we're getting better or worse? Like, What are some of the metrics that you would like to see change as we um, continue down our democratic future? Um, And if there's anything that you want to sort of loop in around just like your thoughts about the role of like politicians and and so forth in this that, that might be an interesting place to drop it in.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is this is a, a obviously a very big question. And in terms of like a metric or or key performance indicators and so forth to assess if polarization and so forth is improving. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not really sure. Um, just because I think I'm so pessimistic, <laughs> like I, I'm so like just I think all of the incentive structures and technological developments and features are working against integration or harmonization. And so I think that's it's, it's challenging for me to even think of what getting better would even look like just because I just do not believe it will get better at scale, uh, which is a pretty pessimistic answer, but that is kind of where I'm at right now. Um, I think the the thing that I'd like to see from, well, with politicians, I think the biggest thing is how they campaign I think is something I think about a lot, right? So I've read books on, I've had I've had an interest in running for office for a while, and I've read a lot of books on how to run for office successfully and win. And it's basically a guide. All these books are basically a guide to how to polarize people to get them angry so they vote for you, right? So the incentives are completely uh, perverse. And the goal of a politician is to incite outrage so that you galvanize your base, uh, now, there are structural reforms that I think could help with that in theory, like what some things Andrew Yang is proposing with his forward party, like ranked choice voting and open primaries, right? So there are structural reforms to the democratic system that can reconstitute the incentive landscape. But I would really like to see politicians think about campaigning in such a way that by the end of the campaign, win or lose, you did something of net benefit to the community. Maybe people are more educated about an issue that they didn't think about before. Maybe you move the Overton window to a policy that is really important, like universal basic income for that that Yang did in 2020, or universal healthcare that Bernie did in 2016, or whatever, and I can name any politician for anything, um, that wasn't reaching uh, public consciousness, and then you helped bring that into the spotlight, even if you lost, right? Maybe in all of the conversations you've had, going door to door and canvassing people, uh, you 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 did some really deep listening to people, and and they felt heard, and they felt like they met someone who cared. And even if you lost, you still did some good for the community because people had a chance to uh, had some political therapy for ten minutes while they talked to you on their front porch, right? So I like to see people thinking about how do I create positive ripple effects and positive externalities through any course of action that I pursue, regardless if you hit the target or not? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the same thing too with policy creation, right? So even if the policy doesn't achieve its stated goal, will it still create some kind of positive externality that uh, will benefit some stakeholder group in some way? And I could could list a lot of examples, but um, that's kind of my general take is that kind of shift in thinking I I would love to see. We're not going to see it probably, but I would still love. That's kind of like my fantasy.
0: (laughs) I, um, I just did like a little series of videos about like hopelessness and despair and PESA optimism. And, 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 uh, so, um, make sure that I can share those with, uh, the folks who are listening, you can find the links wherever, but, um, yeah it's hard to, to look at things and be like, wow, we are, things are really stacked against us right now. And, you know, it's, it's not like large scale change. It seems really challenging. Um, and one of the things that I kind of hear in this, that I, that it might be interesting to think to, there's something about the campaigning part about showing like we can have a different approach to like campaigning and that, really working on policies and starting conversations that are of a wider benefit, like no matter what, like that trying to have a positive impact becomes like the standard by which we measure you know, like what people are doing. And there's an interesting way there about, um, I mean, that's like a little bit of like a cultural standard that kind of needs to happen. It's hard to do that when there aren't really very many examples of it. And it just occurs to me that someone's gonna have to start modeling this. Right, and so I, what I'm sort of I sort of see as a measure or a KPI or some sort of metric that we can sort of see whether or not things are shifting is I would like to see there be some politicians at least that are out there trying to say my goal here is to get the like the the wider good to transcend polarization. I want to solve these issues um, not by giving you the best policy platform, but because I'm going to make sure that we together figure out what the best policy is on this or, you know, bringing in these new factors and these new approaches. And my sense is that there is a way like that. It will require individuals running for office and putting that and coming at it with a different approach than what the system keeps on getting them to do. And I give
1: two more examples I yeah. forgot to give about this. Yeah. So so two uh, two fantasies I have I would try this if I run for office. So one would be part of my campaign would I would like to do a public mediation or public facilitation as the candidate between conflicting stakeholders in the community. So everyone sees if I was a political leader, how would I listen to, take into consideration and steel man the needs and interests of diverse community stakeholders and try to arrive towards a resolution that I'm facilitating? I would actually build that into my campaign platform. The second one would be um going to long form conversations with other candidates. So instead of being on the debate stage with a bunch of two-minute sound bites and hashtags kind of talking points, I would say, hey, let's go on a podcast together. Let's do, let's meet somewhere. Uh, at City Hall or whatever, right? If it's a local race or if it's a presidential campaign, let's go on Joe Rogan and let's talk for three hours. Like, let's actually get into it and see how much substance you have, how deeply you've thought about these things. And if people, so this is where I think leveraging rivalrous dynamics for the greater good can be possible, which is actually what I'm more excited about than trying to move to non rivalry and, and non zero sum is to say, hey, if you don't agree to, um, talk to me for three hours, I'm going to use that and I'm going to like, attack you for not doing that. And so basically that will hopefully give every politician an incentive to have a longer, deeper, more substantive, more nuanced, more complex conversation. And, then if, and that will eventually create a democratic ecosystem that selects for candidates who are able to have those conversations and to display substance right? So we don't select for whoever is the most kind of Trumpy and soundbitey inflammatory person. Uh, and the last thing I would try to do is I would really tinker with different kind of incentive structures on a top, top down where we should start really prioritizing funding and grants for people doing depolarization and omni-win type of work, right? Doing meta-ideological work. And we can come up with our own criteria uh, that, that we can then prioritize funding to. So right now in Portland, all the rage is DEI, 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 DEI. And um, that's what's prioritized, right? So when you apply for a grant, whether it's a public grant or a private grant, 50% of the questions are DEI questions. So I would love to see that expanded to also include depolarization, community integration, omni-win consideration, uh, meta-ideological awareness. How do we develop programs and policies and select leaders who value these things? And you can do that by changing the incentive structures and selection mechanisms. And I think that could be done top down, right? By by talking to, um, leaders of like of foundation, boards of foundations are talking to um, uh, the city and talking to the mayor and, and getting them to prioritize funding for these programs. And even having like a contest in the community about like an anti-debate contest, right? Where we can talk about a polarizing issue and the winner is not going to be assessed via a conventional debate criteria, but the winner will be assessed with a new set of criteria. That's how well were you able to steal man the other side? How, how well were you able to uh, move towards a joint resolution? How well were you able to consider all of the stakeholders in the community and all of their needs and interests, right? And so we're upregulating people with those skills and then giving them uh, leadership positions instead of politicians who just want power and will polarize even more. So that those are some some fantasies that I have and that I would try if I was running for office.
0: So I, those are that's really good. Um, and this is where we get to be like the intellectual doppelgangers. Cause I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, and just, um, I think it'd be so powerful for people to see someone running for office, like actually play that role as facilitator and mediator for the different perspectives. Um, and, and an idea of the long form conversation, like getting out of this debate situation. Like, there's something about, I always think about that, like that nightmare debate that happened between like uh, Biden and Trump back in the day. But uh, just like all of those questions that were being asked were great questions and we weren't getting anywhere closer to any answers of them. So like, how do we want to be in relationship to China? How do we want to be in relationship to Russia? How do we want to deal with climate change? Those are all conversations that really could use a good three hour, 10 hour, three year (laughs) conversation (laughs) um, with like thoughtful exchanges and um, the sound bites aren't going to help us through some of these. And my sense is that that kind of approach would be very refreshing to people. I I, don't, I, that, um, I know that, you know, the world asks, we want our politics to be less negative, but the negative politics does get people elected. And so that's why people keep on coming back to it. But I haven't really seen anyone really trying to, um, be that kind of bridge builder, um, and then your last point about making sure that there's incentives for this, and I'm interested in you know thinking about who needs to talk to who, uh, like here. But Bill Shireman, who is one of the last guests that I had on my on Fractal Friends, my last podcast, who wrote the book called In This Together, um, was a Republican businessman, and environmentalist, and but he has some. We talked at the very end about them creating like a platform or a. Like a screening test for politicians being like, hey, we're going to give you a bunch of support and money if you're willing to fight polarization, like not be trapped in ideological things or just tow your own line. Um, That's going to be worth following up with because I'm not sure exactly how that developed in the last two years since we spoke. So... uh, I'll just say you know, we're talking about transitioning to a QA and a here. If any of you do have some questions you'd like to ask, you're welcome to drop something into the chat um, and we can uh, give you space to answer, ask some questions. If not, I'm just going to keep on talking to you for a little bit, Ryan. So, Ryan, I guess the question I guess I want to ask you then is sort of like, who else and what else? like who do you think need do I need to talk to in this omniwin project podcast like who do you think needs to be in part of this conversation who do you see doing cool things that are inspiring you who do you want to talk to and you know what else are we what else we missing here
1: yeah that's like that's a great question so to your first question a few people that came to mind was my friend Ari Allen who is doing something called the Reconstitution Project which is a team of folks uh including myself uh, who are trying to create a new constitution updated to the 21st century, uh, that covers 10 core questions, uh, relating to politics and economics and society and so forth. And, um, he's, he's doing some really cool things with his reconstitution project. And it's, it's, I think it's the closest thing to like an all win or omni win constitution, like omni win us constitution. That's kind of the goal, right. To kind of translate it into your language. So that's, that's something I would, um, I would really follow up with, uh, or or reach out to him. I could connect you to if you're you're interested, All right? Like, how do we codify omniwin principles into a constitutional document? Right. That's kind of the the project. And he's a lawyer, so he can he is really good at thinking about these things on a technical and legal level. Right. Um. Yeah. That that's kind of the main thing that comes to my mind. I think another thing I would look into would be other kind of like systems thinkers or complexity thinkers. Um, Because one thing I'm interested in with the the concept of omni-win, and this gets back to the idea of boundary judgments and systems epistemology, right? Which is, are we truly considering all of the, the stakeholders who are impacted by anything and if they win or not, right? Because you may think that everyone wins with a certain policy or a certain idea or a certain action, Uh, But then there are actually a stakeholder group that you weren't aware of that lost because the negative externalities of X proposal were placed onto them, right? So how do we think about who we're considering um, when we think of OmniWin? And I think the systems thinkers have done a lot of really good work using kind of systemic stakeholder analysis techniques. Uh, like like who I mentioned, Gerald Migley and the whole School of Management British Systems Thinkers called uh, Critical Systems Thinking. So this includes uh, Robert Flood, Michael Jackson, and Werner Ulrich. And their work is all about systems epistemology. So Werner Ulrich has a method called um, Critical Systems Heuristics. And that's something I think that should should be integrated into any kind of OmniWin uh, platform.
0: Thank you. Those are some great suggestions. I appreciate like both on that like the systemic uh, structural aspect. Um and the recognition of the systems approach. And so I, I'll definitely be following up with you about some of these folks because I still find it harder to articulate that a systems approach to things breaks us out of some of the binary questions, right? Like, are we all connected or are we individuals? Do I care about the web or do I care about myself? Um, that for sure, systems approach recognizes that they're one and the same and... Inextricable, you know, and they have a way of kind of explaining that. But I also really appreciate this reminder to be paying attention to like, who do we consider to be the constituents? Um, mm-hmm. uh, who do we consider to be the stakeholders here and recognizing that that's beyond what you think, right? Like, yes. and, and actually beyond what you're able to even understand, right? A complex systems approach really points out that, like, Yes, the system is following certain rules, but there's so many variables here that we can't really predict what's going to happen in different things. And it seems to me that that there's a way that... yeah, it's, that Also, the system thinking reminds us this is an ongoing process. Right? This isn't yes. like a, we're not getting any fixed state here. It's a dynamic unfolding thing. And so if we decide that we value the different perspectives now um, at the top, we hopefully will be appreciating those different perspectives throughout and having a chance for them to continue to be like yeah this isn't working for me or you know this isn't working for us or you know to to continue to check and to notice like well what else is happening here so i appreciate yeah just the reminder of the 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 deep complexity of, of of any kind of changes that we make and yeah there's a lot of great wisdom there yeah so
1: and there's also a paper I'll send you by Gerald Milley called systemic mediation and it's so right up your alley. Okay. It's all about this. Yeah.
0: Oh, perfect. Okay. Wonderful. So I think I'm just going to kind of wrap this up with like a little bit of a framing here. Um, so I'm stepping into this project um, and this, um, this whole thing about trying to figure out how we can do this. And I'm studying a North star that's way far out, right? And this is a, Not sure if this is possible for us to fix it. I might, I'm in the same kind of pessimistic category as you there. Um, but yet it seems like it's worth it. And it seems like that the world actually does want some change in our system. So this is just the beginning. This is literally the second conversation of this whole podcast. And I, you know, look forward to, um, exploring more about this and then, trying to deepen these conversations and take them to the next level um, and to get even all of the, the the nuanced ideologies of the people who are looking for how do we fix polarization and how do we fix our democracy and to get those to sort of understand each other's approaches. So I just want to say I look, thank you for being here at the very beginning and um, I look forward to having you back and to have further conversations uh, with you. And I'll make a recommendation. If people are listening to this and they hear like what Ryan's saying, check out Ryan's Medium page. He writes wonderful articles about a lot of the topics we've discussed today. And Ryan, how else might people find you if they wanted to to find out more about what you're up to?
1: Yeah, well, we have a YouTube channel called Meta-Ideological Politics. I do that with my co-host, Nate Kaufman. He's a conservative Republican. I'm more on the left, so we can have that red-blue dynamic going. And uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Nakade Ryan, uh, Ryan the Goat Guy. I'm also on Facebook. And um, if you wanna send me an email, it's ryannakade at Uh, gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and uh, collaborate.
0: Wonderful, Um, thank you for being part of this. Thank you so much for listening to the Omni Win Project podcast. This episode was with Ryan Nakata, the co-founder of Meta Ideological Politics. This was part two of two of my conversation with Ryan. If you're looking for part one, it should be in your podcast feed wherever you found this one. Either way, you should go right now to your podcast app or wherever you're listening to this and subscribe to this show. This episode is just the beginning. I have so many more amazing people and ideas that I look forward to bringing to you. For now, I'm grateful for Ryan for being on the show and for all the support that he's given me in bringing this dream into reality. If you want more information about Ryan or meta-ideological politics, I encourage you to check out their YouTube channel. Go find those links in the show notes right now. And now, as you step into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating the future right now, and we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the Omni Win Project
1: podcast. Have a great day.